Hello, and welcome to the Almost LA Podcast. My name is Aiden. My name is Audra. All right. <laughs> did that sound so, weird? Because you looked at me weird. Oh, I did? Yeah, it's okay. No, it's fine. Okay. It was a smooth intro. <laughs> okay, smooth, so smooth, what has happened? Smooth like jazz. Smooth like jazz. Oh, don't bring that up. <laughs> Actually, you know what? It's too I'm bad because this whole podcast is going to be about jazz. No, it's fine. I, I'm doing fine with the jazz now. Actually, nobody's going to understand what I'm talking about when I talk about this right now. Mm-hmm. But in, I learned every, every day when I study, even now, um, like uh, I have, what I started doing is picking up an acoustic guitar and practicing my, my jazz chord shapes and my arpeggios that I need to know now, just literally all throughout the day because it's so much material. Instead of turn my electric guitar on, warm up with a, like a Van Halen song or something mm-hmm. and then you know get distracted and then play later jazz I'll just do the arpeggios work on them and with my acoustic guitar even when I go downstairs and visit my acquaintance mm-hmm. there's an acoustic guitar down there too I'll just play down there whatever what I started doing for soloing what I was having trouble with was soloing over jazz music there's so many chord changes and different notes that you have to know how to hit instead of just soloing over rock song right. which is very easy so instead, I started using our sight reading, um, like, it basically just A, B, C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C, D, E, whatever, like this little shape of notes down by the neck of the guitar, and I'll solo there because I know the notes so well there, and then when I see the chord changes come up, I write them out, whatever notes I'm allowed to hit during the thing or whatever scale, and I'll change it accordingly instead of soloing over a pentatonic scale or whatever. So I know nobody understood what I was just saying, but... That's how I've been getting over my fear of jazz. Oh, good. And I've been doing better. Last, I, I learned uh, these little solo licks that our teacher, jazz teacher writes out. Mm-hmm. And I played every single one of them last class. And I hit every single one perfect. And then I played a really good solo and knew all the good chords. And instead of roasting me like he normally does, he said, good job. Good and I was like, you know what? So good. So, there we go. So what, you have like three weeks left of jazz and you're now getting the swing of it. Right. Awesome. And you know what? Classic. That's how I've been. That's how I've been all my life. I was gonna say classic Aiden. <laughs> classic Aiden. Literally, God damn it. But it's fine. And then next quarter, we have. So we'll have our nice little Hawaii trip mm-hmm. after I end jazz, which is a good way to relax. With right. Some, with some jazz. Yep. With some. Well, no, with Hawaii, not jazz. Okay. That's PTSD. But next quarter, we play Led Zeppelin songs, Jimi Hendrix songs, all this other fun stuff. So you're gonna be in your element. I'll be in my element. Like, well, oh, just God. just like that monologue you just gave, um, being mm. conf- that I don't know what you were saying. Right. This whole episode I've been researching. Most mm-hmm. of it I don't know what I was reading because we're going to okay. talk about Charles Mingus, who was a jazz prodigy, music prodigy, mm-hmm. and half the stuff about his compositions and technique whatever i it was literally like reading another language i have no idea what's going on so imagine what the actual music's like i (laughs) I can't even imagine i mean (laughs) i feel like my brain's gonna explode yeah and i probably don't even know i'm probably gonna sound like i don't know what i'm talking about when i start talking about him but that's fine all right well how did your um money situation end up you seem a lot better the last episode Mm -hmm. you had like an ostrich with your head in the sand because we yeah barely heard from you it's good we have Ellie, it's good we had Ellie there to help me out last week. I actually needed that. We That's mi- why I was like, we miss you, Ellie. We miss you, Ellie's Ellie. Not here this week, but you no, seem you have yeah. a lot more energy. You seem happier, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it feels like things have turned around for you. Yeah. Good. Well, it's probably because I ate something other than a Nutrigrain bar. 
Um, wow, great. Now we're never going to get a, a sponsor from Nutrigrain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, they're really good. That's why I ate so many of them. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, so now, now I'm fine. My habits are going to be Starbucks only on the weekends. So I got Starbucks this weekend. Okay. Whatever. Actually, I got coffee bean because does it's it cheaper. Does it better but when you have to wait for it? It does. Good. And it also makes you miss it more because you're like, oh, this cup of black coffee that I get from the school that's free, technically, is, is so much worse than <laughs> a venti caramel macchiato from Starbucks, <laughs> well, which literally is so good. It's when, but it's you, when you get to be my age, the black coffee tastes better than the caramel macchiato because that sounds no, disgusting. Well, usually I get the iced Americano because, you know, Good. Whatever. Okay. Well, great. But I started getting, I don't know, I just started getting the, the cheap, not the cheap, the more expensive, good tasting drink. I don't know why I got back into that habit, but okay. well, now I'm on that black coffee. You're going to have to get famous because you can't afford your own lifestyle. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, uh, welcome to LA. Okay, yeah. good. Well, this week, this is, was it? This was a lot because I... Like, oh, we'll talk about Charles Mingus, and he grew up in Watts, so we'll talk about the riots and the tower. It'll be cool. And it's like, wow, this right. little enclave of Watts, you people have got a lot of history, and it is amazing, and it is sad, and and it's a lot. So um, buckle up. Here we go. So, so I, I feel So like basically, some of the topics that we have are, are that are we going to gloss over about this today are L.A.'s racial segregation. Mm-hmm. The Watts Tower? Yep. Charles Mingus, obviously, and the Watts Riots. Right. Okay. I was always, I don't know about anybody else, and this might be just my weird thing, but when I go to a city, especially a big city, and then you see all these little different sections of like, okay, well, why is South Central LA, you know, why is the African American community here? Why is Japantown here? You know, you know, why, we all know, you know, why are all the people in Beverly Hills? Like, whatever. You, I, I think about, like, how did all these people end up in these situ- you know, s- areas? Right. And, and I want to know the history of how they got there. And th- for some reason, that makes me appreciate the, you know, the history of the town better, the city better. Um, and I don't know, just the layout of it. Um, mm-hmm. Even if it's good or bad history, it's, it's the history. It is what it is. So... You know, everybody, especially with, you know, Nipsey Hussle's passing and then, like, John Singleton just passed, you know, the famous movie director. Uh, there's been a lot of talk, especially out here, about South Central um, L.A. And because of rap and the Bloods and Crips, there's a lot of right. recent, like, history that everybody knows about. So I'm going to go back to why is that area there? How did it start there? And why were those people, you know, segregated into that area specifically? Um, yeah. And so let's talk about Watts. Um, so Watts was named, as we know, we've talked about in other episodes, um, that the Native Americans were there, and then the Spanish came in, the missions, blah, blah, blah. And then there was these uh, land grants that were given to uh, families to have ranches. And then from there, p- pieces were broken off into create cities around L.A. Okay? So the Watts family owned this uh, track of land which is where Watts is now and they donated um, a 10 acre track to the Pacific Electric Railway when the railroad boom was coming in and all the railway was going out there and in 1904 they built Watts Station 
um, which is still there today, by the way. And for over 50 years, it was a major depot for the red car service, which ran between L.A. and Long Beach. Okay. So the station was one like, of the... Like downtown L.A. and Long Beach? Or yep, exactly. Downtown L.A. and Long Beach. So people could okay. get down to the harbor areas to work. From yep. where you could go to... From Watts, you could go up to downtown to work or down to Long Beach. Um, the station was one of the first buildings in Watts, and then a community obviously quickly grew up around it. So it went from being like cattle ranches to and farmland to then having the railway station there and then a little community popping up around that. So in an L.A. Times article um, dated September 9th, 1923, it described Watts as this. They had, quote, excellent highways that lead in and out of Watts from four sides. It has 300,000 worth of road constructions happening right now. 660 trains that run through Watts every 18 hours, basically a minute 30 seconds, a train would come through um, to help with commuters. And it would take you downtown to LA in 20 minutes and to the harbor in 23 minutes. It had, wow. it had eight new grammar schools and a new library. And because the fruit belt that went through there, we've mentioned that before, there was the fruit mm -hmm. belt because of the weather, there's no frost. Um, it provides year round fruits and vegetables. So according to the paper, it was this amazing place to, hey, let's all move to Watts. You're going to have good food. You're going to be able to get to work on time. And everything's going to be great. And then, of course, they talked about the ocean breeze that you can't even imagine that you could get anywhere in Los Angeles. But, you know, remember we talked about the Hollywood Hills. That was a big thing about the health is same thing in Watts. Ocean breeze comes in. Nobody gets sick. Like, they were kind of touting that whole thing in the paper. So, right. Um, so... And everybody, if anybody's in Watts right now listening to that, they're probably laughing their asses off because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's not like that well. now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so then you take that, that seemed to be a little bit of like fluffing up the area probably to get people to go down there to buy homes and stuff. Um, and then there, then some little um, things happened in Watts that weren't so great. Like in 1950, 1950, 1915, the mayor of Watts was arrested for arson. Um, he burned down the Watts Lumber Company for money. He claimed, obviously, that he didn't do this, but he did. Yeah. And there was a lot of fighting at this time, um, dur you know, between before prohibition, between what they called the dries and the wets. So if you were dry, you obviously were trying to ban alcohol. If you were a wet, you wanted alcohol. So a lot of hustle and bustle would go on about um, town meetings and there would be fist fighting and in the newspaper they said there's people saying bad words which was like awful back then um, <laughs> yeah they're like Twitter. they had like a, in the paper somebody in a town meeting about prohibition or the thought of prohibition said like a bad word and it was just a line like they said the quote the guy said and there was a line and then everybody got so upset about this bad word that there was like a, a scuffle and the cop showed up because somebody said a bad word wow yeah um, in 1914, which I thought was interesting, there was a black realtor, his name was Charles C. Leake, was doing business in the area. Him and his wife, um, Sarah, lived on Linwood Road in Compton. So I tried to find, I spent way too much time trying to find some information on him because I thought it was interesting that there was a black real estate guy there. And I was like, oh, who's this guy? He must be in the history books. Nope. He wasn't even on the census. The only reason of course I, not. I, the only reason I knew where he lived was because he was in the city directories, him and his wife, at and, and he's 
listed as a real estate agent and then I kind of did some research about so during this time around the turn of the century um, African Americans were living in kind of like little pockets all over LA and 40% of them actually owned their own homes and they were doing pretty well um, there's a whole history that you can look up online which we might do another time about the black beaches that were like in Santa Monica and um, Manhattan Beach and so they seem to be kind of doing really well within their own community and thriving. And then like this like beat down of like the 1920s, kind of all these laws about buying property and homes and all this stuff, of course, like pushed everybody down again. So there was a little period where it was like, oh, this might be going well. And then of course that was all squashed. Um, and then we'll kind of get to that. <clears throat> okay. So in 1919, as I said, there was the alcohol stuff going on and things had got, gotten kind of so, according to the LA Times, out of hand, that the next mayor, the new mayor who did not do arson, wanted to change Watts's name, thinking that this would kind of get rid of all the bad mojo that had been going on the past, you know, 20, 30 years or whatever. And he asked the residents to write in name suggestions that would appear in the paper or appear on the next uh, ballot when they voted the next time. Um, so in an LA Times article dated January 25th, 1919, Mayor Town, who was the, the mayor at the time, said, quote, we don't want a Spanish name. There are no Spanish traditions here. What we want is something sane and substantial, end quote. <laughs> Which I thought was okay. wacky. <laughs> okay. Because all it is is Spanish traditions. <laughs> How can you make such a poor decision when your name as a mayor is Mayor Town? <laughs> That's I'm so glad you said that because I literally had in like quotations like I was going to say something ironically about Mr. Town, Mayor Town, right. and I was like, that's yeah. corny, Ian's going to think that's stupid, so thanks for making No, well, joke. it's not corny or stupid because he's clearly from a cartoon <laughs> or a TV show as the mayor of town. Yes. Maybe. Jesus. Mayor Town? Come on. That's on the nose. Oh, there's another one, uh, an article about segregation, and the guy that was, that was the like, main guy was like so-and-so white his last name was white and he's like mm -hmm. we have to segregate and my name's something something white and i'm like of course it is you idiot <laughs> it was it was it was like a cartoon talking on the, in yeah. the paper so i just thought that was an interesting kind of like the, it seems like the newspaper especially when they're talking about watts which you know watts was at the time it was uh, very integrated there was a um, when i looked at the census um, which i'll talk about in a second there was um mostly African Americans, Hispanic, Mexican, obviously, and and whites, all you know, a lot from Iowa, which I thought was weird, um, in the Midwest that had come out. And they were all living in the same neighborhoods and it was fine. Um I well, I say fine, but I mean I'm sure they had yeah. their own little issues. But um, you know, to say that there was no Spanish traditions and all that was just it's just stupid. Um so Clearly, that didn't work out. He admitted in the paper that there was some opposition to the name change, and it clearly didn't happen. So that yeah. was a waste of time. So congratulations, Mr. Town. So the interesting thing, when you look at the statistics, that I'm just going to throw my genealogy hat on and give you a little genealogy lesson, is in certain years of the census, um, like in the 1920 census, so you'll see all these statistics like, oh, Watts and Compton were primarily white here and blah, blah, blah. And, and Compton, yes, was a very uh, um, white neighborhood back in the early 1900s. Um, and Watts was more integrated and had more kind of a diverse 
um, group of people. But when in the 1920 census, Mexicans or me- people from Mexican ancestry who were born in California, but either their, both their parents were from Mexico because of the statehood, um, everybody was considered white. So when you look at the census, really? you'll see your race and it'll say white. But then when you look at where your mother and father are from, it'll say Mexico. Hmm. And then what do your mother and father speak? Spanish. So these are clearly, and, they're, and then if they're born in California, they're first generation Californians, but they're, they're Hispanic. I couldn't tell if that would be Trump's worst nightmare or dream. <laughs> I don't know. It could be either one. I don't know. So, so the, and then, of course, in the 1920 census, um, if, if you were mixed race, you were called mulatto. So you'll see wh- your race, and it'll say ah. M. Okay. Well, then in 1930, 30 census, if you had one drop of blood that was African-American or black from another country or whatever, you were black. You were not mulatto. So it kind huh. of took away anybody's mixed race heritage with the what they called the one drop rule. So sometimes when you see these statistics and these certain articles online, if they're not really digging into the history of the census taking, it will kind of skew how white these communities actually were, you know, right. back then, because some of them were more Hispanic than white. So that's my little two cents. So just be careful. So beginning in the 19 in 1916 is what's called considered the start of the Great Migration, which is when Africans African Americans started just kind of like migrating out of the South up into the North and West and Midwest. And prior to 1910, 90% of African Americans lived in the South. Whoa. Well, shouldn't be a surprise, but yes. Uh, that's still crazy to think yes. about, though. It is. So. In 19, by 1930, um, public housing projects were being approved by the federal government. And in Santa Monica and Venice, housing was uh, proposed at one point for um, migrants that were coming into the town and didn't have any place to go. And mm-hmm. the whites were opposing this and completely freaked out and were protesting and everything. And so the government was having to step in to find an area where this influx of African-Americans could go. And then, of course, when you get in the 40s, when the war industry needed, like, you know, workers um, during World War II for the aerospace stuff that we had talked about in a previous episode, too, you know, they were like, okay, we're going to get rid of this discrimination and hiring thing, you know, and, and we need black workers to come in. So we need all these, you know, migrants to come in and work. But we don't want them living in our neighborhoods, basically. So... Back then, there was um, what is called restrictive covenants, which is kind of a housing term. And so that kind of made it where you weren't supposed to discriminate within housing. These um, restrictions said that white people could, if you owned a piece of property, you didn't have to sell to a black person if you didn't want to. So there's this loophole, basically. So. Um, between 1942 and 1945, just to give you an example of how many people were coming in, in those three years to come help the war effort, 200,000 African Americans migrated to Los Angeles alone. Damn. What was the population then? You know? Um, you can find it. I saw. I'll I look s- it up. I saw it, and it didn't. Um, but it basically doubled every like 10, 15 years. Um, it during this time, specifically with like African Americans and Hispanic people coming in. So these guys didn't have anywhere to go. They had nowhere to live because everybody was like 
you can't come to our neighborhoods, blah, blah, blah. The one area that they could go that didn't have that many restrictions on it was South Central. So the, coven the, <coughs> the covenants um, were, they, the, they weren't restrictive in the areas, I'm gonna give you a little kind of map area here, that they extended south from downtown LA through Central Avenue. So this is where it's not very restrictive, okay? Because it was basically, nobody was really there. So yep. South LA along Central Avenue, which was a huge like African-American um, hub of um, bars and restaurants and, and like social stuff going on, to Slauson, uh, <coughs> and then, and so that was called basically the Central Avenue Corridor. Um, and by 1940, approximately 70% of the black population was in this kind of corridor and relied okay. on the social needs of that corridor. Um, and that's okay. basically and where the South, sorry, that's basically where the South Central vernacular um, came into play. And that was kind of in the 20s where they started calling it South Central Los Angeles because that is the section of that like street right there that the African-Americans were kind of forced to live in. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So it says here, I'm going to read a quote from, I think it was, uh, I can't remember what I was reading. I've read so many things. South Central became the blanket term for all black Los Angeles from Central Avenue to Watts to the Crenshaw District. The roots of South Central Los Angeles trace back to the beginning of the 20th century. The neighborhood that is now known as the historic South Central includes the area between the Harbor Freeway on the west, Central Avenue on the east, Washington Boulevard in the north, and Vernon Avenue to the south. Although this pocket is about 40 square miles, the name South Central became an umbrella term for Black Los Angeles, a much larger area stretching all the way to Watts and Compton on the south and the west across the 110 freeway into Inglewood and the Crenshaw District. Okay, so that is where everyone was kind of told to live. And then basically couldn't really move out of almost to, to this day at this point too. Sadly. I mean, yeah, that, that's still very... <coughs> Depending on your financial situation and how you grew what, up. What, it was the south of the... Sorry, what was it? Or the 110 west across the 110 freeway? Uh, yes. Into, Ingle Wait, so into Inglewood it, and Crenshaw. Are you looking at a map right now? Yeah. So what about... Because the 110 runs through, like, uh, basically, like, north to south, if you're looking at L.A. on a map. Mm -hmm. And then Inglewood and Hawthorne are to the left, and then further left, Santa Monica, Manhattan Beach on the coast. And then to the right of the 110, there's like Compton, Lakewood, mm -hmm. and then Watts. Right. So that you're saying not just west of the 110, but like west and a little east of the 110? Was that whole area, or was right. it just one? And initially, there was also something long, long before like Watts and Compton came into the area. Because remember, Compton used to be really white, and Watts mm -hmm. was kind of more diverse. But yeah the line that they didn't want blacks coming down from was, oh, I think it was 130th Street, or t they wanted to keep them above 130th and up. They wanted to keep them above so 130th it was like, Street? it was like past downtown and above 130th, which was the original kind of pocket that you were in, and then it had to uh -huh. spread down to the Watts Compton area because there were so many people coming in. Right. So that leads you into where you're going to build, you know, down in Watts and Compton, like I said, for a long time, that was just undeveloped land because it was ranches yeah. so during world war ii the housing projects that got approved 
um, that were built that are still there today are Nickerson Gardens, Jordan Downs, and Imperial Courts. Those today are primarily Hispanic because of the, the in, you know, the in and outs of who's more, you know, who has more poverty in that area. And those housing projects are so old at this point, and it's it used to be in the 60s up until the 60s it was primarily black, and now it's primarily Hispanic, according yeah. to the internet. If I'm wrong, please let me know. Um, and then, unfortunately, after the war, and the factories obviously closed, can we all guess what happened? Everybody was unemployed, especially the African Americans that migrated there to work. Right. So they had a hard time finding jobs and coming from the South and basically, you know, having kind of no education down there and having and working, you know, field jobs, not factory jobs. You know, this new skill that they had was kind of taken away and there was nowhere really for them to go. And that kind of festered until um, the 60s. And in 1961, to further the problem, you have the Watts Rail Station that I was talking about, which kind of gave people an opportunity to get to work. That station closed, which left mm -hmm. a huge impact on the low-income community. Yeah, most people couldn't afford a car, and with the passenger line shut down, it made it difficult them for them to get to work. There were a few bus lines in the community, but they didn't go to the areas where there was a lot of employment opportunities. So you'd have to take yeah. multiple buses over like a few hours just to get to work, which made right. it extremely difficult. And most people were probably like, <coughs> "Screw that! I'm not doing it." And you know, and then you. So they basically put all these people in like this what was it like farmland basically you said right or just undeveloped mm -hmm. land they built this community up I guess you'd call it well, it was undeveloped that in, had the, in the early 1900s and then you right, know, there was I'm some development like the there in the in the 40s but in the 40s it was not a ton yes it's not it wasn't like other places in LA so I'm saying they put right. it wasn't downtown there was a there was transportation mm -hmm. and there was job opportunities so they right. said sure come on in put them all in this undeveloped right. land and then once they didn't need that work anymore, basically cut off the railway, which just tra it just kind of seems like they just trapped right. all these like e ethnic groups yes. in this shitty area with nothing to like do. Right, disadvantaged, you know. Yeah. And and this is basically what institutional oppression is: is when you yeah. isolate somebody to a, a group, you have specific vernacular for them, you take away jobs, you take away transportation. You know, you you your schools become old. No one wants to teach there, and you know, and that's basically by you know the 1960s that what was going on. So basically, the, the, we stood on the backs of the African American community in LA, and then we're like, all right, thanks, peace out. Right. And the, still, a lot of those areas are. Right. Well, it's hard. It's hard to come out of that. Yeah. Okay. So. Wow. By 1967, Watts did get a blue and white line um, that bus line that was actually african-american owned and operated um but they had troubles kind of staying open and then they were bought by a bigger company in in 71 um so there was their own community was trying to kind of get things up and going and that was after the riots which we'll talk about in a, s a second which was in 65 so according to a, a c-span report it was a new c-span um news report that i watched online which was if you want to watch something that makes you want to barf, go watch a L.A. news, um, you know, broadcast from '65, especially after the riots. But they said, according to them, uh, that two-thirds of adults in Watts had less than a high school education, one-eighth were illiterate, 
and Whoa. one out of ten homes was built before uh, built in the early 1930s. One in five. So basically, those homes that we were talking about in the 20s, they might have built yeah. a little bit longer, and then they didn't build any more, you know, homes, barely any more homes until then. And then they built the projects basically in the 40s. Um, one in fi five of the homes was actually condemned with people living in them. Oh, that's uh, a lot. Yes. That's Watts, a whole lot. Watts had the lowest average income in L.A. in 1965 oh. um, with people making 4000 a year in that community, but the average in L.A. for white people was 8000 So they were making half <laughs> of what white people were making. 60% were on welfare and 30% were unemployed. And Oof. one in three came from a broken home. So, long is that why a lot of the is that why a lot of the like I'm looking at a like a Google Street View of Watts, is that why a lot of these like homes are built on these like skinny plots of land that come right up onto the street? Because you know these grid, like, grid areas where there's just mm -hmm. like these little tiny houses, mailbox out front. Yeah, you park your car on the street, basically no, or the driveway is like dirt, and you open your little gate and drive your car, and it's just like for like. Like these huge, yeah. you know what I'm talking about? There's like these yeah. sprawling, well, mass, that, like grid that, places. That, with my little architect knowledge and development knowledge, is a direct result of like in wartime or times where you have a, a mass influx of people coming in and you have developers throw up these houses. Yeah. So you'll even look in like the 50s in the suburbs, perfect example, post war 1950s, you'll, the 1950 development homes you'll see in the, in the suburbs that were not really a thing until after World War II, you know, mm -hmm. um, which is where a lot of the white people after the war went. So the white people all left to go to the suburbs and the blacks had to stay because they didn't have job opportunities. Yeah. And then you'll see these like cookie cutter kind of like, you know, leave it to beaver homes that all look the same because they yeah. thre threw them up because the baby boom and all this stuff after the war. Yeah. Okay. So the longstanding resentment by Los Angeles working class black community over discriminatory treatment and by police and inadequate public services, especially schools and hospitals, exploded on August 11th, 1965, into what was commonly known as the Watts Riot. So we will get to the Watts Riot in a second. During this time, as we talked about, I kind of wanted to mention two people who lived in the area that made a big impact um, during this time that we're talking about between the 20s and the 60s. Um, one of them was an immigrant from Italy. Uh, he was an Italian-American artist named Sabato Simon Rodia. He was born in Italy in 1879 and came to America with his brother in 1915. And after a divorce and three kids, uh, he eventually settled in Watts uh, looking for odd jobs. And for an unknown reason that people don't really understand today, uh, Simon began building what would become the Watts Towers. And he called them, I don't know, you know Spanish better than me, Aiden, Nuestro Pueblo. What? Where's, where does it say that in the thing? N-U-E-S-T-R-O. Nuestro Pueblo. I Nuestro Pueblo. Meaning. Oh, it means our town? Yeah, our town. Oh, okay. I so. would not have guessed that, but cool. Well, you took Spanish for like five years. Yeah, well. Okay, well, there you go. I botched a word again. So. <laughs> Nuestro Pueblo. <laughs> so. The towers are said to be the largest structure built by one man. His quote, which he rarely um, did interviews, he was kind of an isolated solo man. He was made fun of in the community. Kids would throw rocks at him. He was kind of that eccentric dude. He was yeah. he was 4'10", so he was a small Italian Aww. eccentric, you know, quiet to himself dude. So um, it was. So it wasn't. It was nuestro pueblo. Right. 
Yeah. So your Italian accent's amazing. Thank you. <laughs> he said, uh, quote, I was one of the ba- bad men in the United States, he recalled. Quote, I was drunk all the time, always drinking, end quote. He was 42, barely literate. He had unskilled, uh, he was unskilled beyond the basic tasks of a life of labor. Um, so in 1921, he began to build, quote, something big, and he said, quote, you have to either uh, be good, good, or bad, bad to be remembered, he often said. So he said, you got to do something. They never got him in the world. I don't know what that means. You got to <laughs> do something. They never got him in the world. It's very big. <laughs> do that in your Italian accent. You got to do something. <laughs> they never got him in the world. Okay. That was kind of bad, but you get the, you get the idea. Right. You got to do a something. So now you're so a so I. I made you be racist. Sorry. Well, yeah. I love him. Yeah, okay. Well. Um, <laughs> I clearly cut and pasted that wrong because that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so he began by digging a foundation, um, then made the rest up as he kind of went along. He'd build something, then tear it down and start over, and this was over a 33-year process. He used steel rebar and his own concoction of a type of concrete, and he wrapped it with mesh or wire mesh. The main supports are embedded with pieces of porcelain, tile, and glass, and they are decorated with found objects that sometimes he would walk up to 20 miles away to get, um, like bottles, ceramic tiles, seashells, figurines, mirrors, anything. Um, kids in the neighborhood would come by with like broken pottery or stuff that they would find to give him when they weren't throwing stuff at him they would actually give him stuff um there's a lot of cool la history within the structures because there's some malibu pottery that's in there um some calico which is california clay products company that are in there so stuff that at the time he was probably like oh i'll break this and put it up there but now are you know like heirloom pieces around the la area that people probably collect um, green glass, um, which were from uh, soft drink bottles from like the 30s throughout the into the 50s. That's cool. Like Seven Up, Squirt, Bubble Up, Canada Dry, Bubble Up. I totally forgot about Bubble Up. Um, blue glass appears to be from the milk of magnesia bottles, um, and he also used scraps from the Pacific Electric Railway, which we talked Aha. about. Earlier. So it's very cool. I, yeah, you should look up. A, if you don't know what they look like, you should look them up because I'm looking at a picture of them right now, and they make you go like this. Oh, okay. Yeah. They're they very l- weird. They look like TV antenna towers, like huge or like, old yeah, school. Yeah, like, like metal Christmas trees or something. And then you look something. closely, they're all decorated like a mosaic, just, you know, colorful mosaic stuff. Um, he built a collection of 17 interconnected sculptural towers um, and architectural structures and individual sculptures, uh, features, and mosaics within the site of his property which was obviously a residential property. So as you can imagine, he had problems with permits. LA County was constantly on him about permits and telling him to take stuff down, but he was like, it's my property. So there was kind of like fighting, but you know, he, uh, he got to do it. Um, in the summer of 1954, he had a mild stroke and shortly after the stroke, he fell off a lower part of the tower. He was 75. I don't think he got too hurt, but I think he was like, okay, I think I'm done here kind of thing. In 1955, he sold his property to a neighbor, um, and he left. And at the, at the time, they didn't know where he went. Um, um, but they found him years later, and he was living in uh, Martinez, California. There was, I guess, somebody had made a um, 
a show, like did an art show about it or something. I don't know if it was photographs or whatever. And they were showing it in Berkeley. And he showed up. He was in his 80s. He had some broken teeth and like a shock of white hair. And he showed up there and they introduced him. And he waved and at the audience. Appla- everybody applauded for him. And he tipped his hat. And he died four years later. And that was kind of his life. Which cool. He did something big and he is now remembered so he did exactly what he was going to do which is kind of cool the Watts Towers are a designated National Historic Landmark Um, they're on the California Historical Landmark list and they're super cool so go check those out Um, the city of course as cities do sometimes declared the structure unsafe and wanted to remove it but luckily the community got to came together and said look let's reinforce this if we can reinforce it let's keep it and that's what they did so then the city was forced to declare it safe and they obviously conserved it and and kept it around um so another person famous very famous person who grew up literally in the shadow of the towers at the same time that um simon got there jazz uh, musician and composer charles mingus moved there and he literally grew up a, a block away from the towers. So when I say the shadows of the towers, he was right there. And he remembers kids making fun of the guy and kind of going by there. And his brother, he said his brother used to, uh, or his uh, a friend of his used to kind of go over there and give the kid guy stuff and also make fun of him too because they thought he was just kind of kooky. Um, Charles Mingus was born in Nogales, Arizona on April 22nd, 1922. So he just had a birthday. Um, his mother passed away shortly after his birth, and him and his father uh, moved to Watts in 1923, and they lived at 1621 East 81st Street, and I sent, his house is still there, it is in very bad, very bad shape, you can see it on Zillow, um, and I don't think the person that lives there knows that a famous jazz musician and composer lived there, um, but unfortunately it doesn't look great. It would be nice if somebody snagged it maybe turned it into like a little museum or something since it's right across the street from the towers and that museum would be kind of a neat little block of famous people stuff um anyway i looked that up on ancestry so maybe people don't know that's where it lives (laughs) (laughs) so i don't want to get in trouble so mingus it was an interesting dude did you have you talked about charles mingus in your jazz class i'd be shocked if they hadn't mentioned him actually i just have a little inclination I guess uh, we on our online jazz class um, we had a question about him last week but I don't remember what it was but he's he was like a whole lesson awesome and you don't remember yeah. any of it well no because okay. it's online jazz class <laughs> uh, so goddamn boring but it's fine <laughs> okay great good to hear it yeah so he Mingus himself is like LA you know when you hear about his background he is yeah. a part he is he's got so many different you know, like, like ethnic mixes in him that he, it's like LA, which is just crazy to me. So it's almost perfect that he moved there. Um, in his autobiography, he describes his mother as the daughter of an Englishman and Chinese woman and his father as the son of a black farm worker and a Swedish woman. Oh. Now, apparently the story goes that this Swedish woman was having an affair with the slave uh, worker. He was a slave. And because when she got pregnant, he had to, like, run away and ended up out west or something like that. But that can't be confirmed. <clears throat> and then he also has some German heritage because one of the uh, patriarchs of the family that came over to America was from Germany, apparently. So he's kind of got um, 
a, a great mix of things and he's he struggled growing up um, with his identity apparently according to his autobiography these are his words his parents raised him as white until he was 14 but no one can confirm this his stepmother he had a stepmother at the time I don't know what race she was um, but his dad was African-American um, and he struggled he said as he was growing up with he wasn't black enough to be considered black and he wasn't white enough to be considered white so he kind of was in this weird state where he didn't really know where he belonged um, his autobiography is named Beneath the Underdog and I was going to read parts of it but then I didn't because I read some excerpts of it and um, some reviews of it and it's people say it's a loose bio because it has been deemed to be possibly overly exaggerated he uh -huh. claims to have been a pimp at some point um, and it's heavily detailed with his like sexcapades about all the women he was with and and details of their sex life which I was like I don't need to <laughs> I don't need to go into all that <laughs> thanks bro but you know it's okay <laughs> when you there's and there's a couple biography you know um, biographies of him online and interviews with him and he's just he's an interesting character he's completely out there and at times like abrasive he's very sweet he's kind of n not in the right mind it seems like and I'll kind of go into that in a second um so and he says and he was also very controversial he would say stuff at times to see people's reaction and his quote about his own book was quote my book was written for black people to tell them how to get through life I was trying to upset the white man in it end quote um so there you go. So Charles was a uh, uh, was considered a jazz prodigy and a classical music prodigy. Also, um, he was extremely talented. Sometimes very sweet and sometimes violent, um, which is what most of his friends said about him. Charles Mingus was notorious for being outspoken and harsh, <coughs> and he would get super irritated at the audience who wasn't paying attention to the band. He would either be really argumentative and disrupt everything and kind of piss them off by telling them to be quiet or whatever it is, or he would um, somehow involve them with the music by having them count them in, having them, you know, sing throughout it, whatever it was, um, depending on his mood. Um, his last wife, Sue, uh, he was married a couple times, had a bunch of kids. Uh, she said he was, quote, powerful, honest, and volatile. So I sent you that clip, did you watch it, where he, and you can see it on YouTube, where he's, his mic's not on, and he's mm. like, turn the fucking mic on, turn the fucking <laughs> mic, just yelling, and then somebody turns his mic on, and then he goes immediately into, like, whatever amazing song he's playing. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's kind of funny. So, he said, quote, all the music I heard when I was very was a very young child was church music. Uh, my father went to Methodist church, and my stepmother, Mamie, uh, would take me to the Holiness Church, which was far too raw for my father. Uh, Charles began playing the trombone as a kid. And he was taught uh, by some well-known trombone player when he was, you know, in junior high, high school. Then he started to play the cello, um, and he actually played with the L.A. Junior Philharmonic for a little while, um, but he could only go so far with classical music because he could not read musical notation, um, which frustrated him and kind of limited him. And then he started playing um, the bass 
when his friend Buddy Colette, who was another prominent jazz musician from Watts, told him that he had to learn it because that's what they needed in the swing band he was starting. And then he ended up becoming obsessed with it and mastering it. Um, and he said, quote, I never really understood the bass until I started working out harmonies and other things on the piano. So he played the trombone, piano, cello, and the uh, jazz bass or double bass. Um, because of his early classical training, it really helped him with his bass technique. And even in his teen years, he was already really advanced in writing his musical pieces. And then he would bring in gospel, blues, and jazz. Um, it was kind of like the mixture of influences he had. Other artists from Watts, they had a lot of jazz artists um, because there was a um, Central Avenue, which we talked about, that was a very prominent social um, street for Afri the African-American community. They had a lot of clubs on that area, really famous clubs, the Dunbar Hotel Club, Alabama, and the Downbeat, and then the Elks Hall, which is actually one uh, early um, African-American owned building down in LA, and that's just to name a few clubs that were there. Um, all these guys kind of grew up in that area and would go down there and perform. And so a lot of big names came from the Watts area, including Don Cherry, uh, Cecil Big J McNeely, the Woodman Brothers, William Boogie Daniels, and Dexter Gordon. I like all their nicknames. Big J and Boogie. So he was so good um, that by the time he was 21, he was touring with Louis Armstrong. Um, and that was in 1943. And then he was starting to record music in 1945. And then by 1947, he was touring with the Lionel Hamptons Band, which was a really popular jazz uh, band, touring up in California. He played with jazz legends Charlie Parker, Eric Dolphy, Dizzy Gillespie, and Herbie Hancock, who those are people I've actually heard of, which is pretty impressive. <laughs> um, Mingus is said to have taken the jazz movement out of the bebop era and into the avant-garde jazz era. Have you learned about all those in jazz? Yeah, we we learned about the bebop. Is bebop more of like swingish type of jazz? I think so. Yeah. And then I'm assuming the avant-garde is more like freestyle kind of like, because Mingus was known to just off the top of his head start doing stuff. Yeah, and so it's probably more towards like the, because bebop wouldn't be more towards improv, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was very improv improvisational. Yeah. Um, his style is described as inspired by the music of Duke Ellington. He was obsessed and loved Duke Ellington. That was one of his early influences that he heard from a very young age and wanted to be just like him. Um, and Mingus created jazz scores and compositions of textural color while retaining the dominant element of improvisation. He sought to create, quote, spontaneous compositions that offered musicians individual freedom and collective improvisation, even though un- notated sections. Often through unnotated sections. Often through unnotated sections. Thank you. Oh, well, that's weird as fuck. Sorry for the swear word. <laughs> so he just wouldn't... That's really weird. So he just wouldn't put parts of his music in there? Yeah, And well then he, they'd just be like, uh... <laughs> well, a lot of it, he didn't know how to write down, like, as you heard from before. Oh. He didn't know how to write down some of the musical right. stuff he had in his head. It sounds like he was very much in his head all the time and had, like, multiple things going on in his head at all times. And so, in one of the um, documentaries I watched, I watched um, a couple on him, a lot of the people that he played with you know, he'd say, hey, can you write this down for me? And, you know, and he'd kind of put that pressure on them, and they'd be like, yeah, and they would, some of them would 
gladly do it and then some of them you know if he was asking them to write down one of his solos they were like dude that's your thing you write it down then you get frustrated so one guy that was telling him a story he was like he'd asked him to write down one of his solo things or something and the guy was like no that's yours you write it down and he punched him in the mouth and broke like his three <laughs> front teeth out like one of them down to the root and the guy was like yeah but he was my buddy and we still played so it's like that's just kind of the thing he was you know on and he was doing um, and then another guy was like, look, he'd bring in these like super complex things that he had written out or whatever, and none of us could play it, but because we wanted to impress him, we'd go home and just cram all night and then show up the next day, and he'd even change something again the next day. So he's like, it eventually made us better musicians, but it seems like super stressful. Yeah. Um, but I think he was just constantly changing and writing and you know improvising, and, and I think you know you had to be able to keep up with him, it sounds like, to play with him. And I think when he found people, he had certain people that he played with for 20 plus years. Because I think once he found the people that could keep up with him, they stayed together kind of thing, you know. So by 1951, he had moved to New York. He'd moved out of California and moved to New York. And he actually started a record company called Debut Records, which was uh, one of the first artist-run record companies. And um, so we're going to play some of his music coming up. And I'm just going to kind of play it, play it, play it. Some of his um, pieces that and kind of give you a different feel of what he was influenced by with different pieces and some of them are very long so we're going to play quick you know pieces of them but it's not going to be like a good representation i think of what he is unfortunately but you get the idea so in 1959 he recorded a goodbye pork pie hat as an elegy for saxophonist lester young who was a prominent member of the count bassey orchestra he also always obviously wore a pork pie hat. And if you want to know what that is, it was a classic kind of 1940s hat. It was just had a rim around it, very kind of square top, you know, kind of rounded. And I guess it had like a string inside of it that you could kind of adjust and pull tight for windy days. Hmm. There you go. Um, so this is this composition is one of his uh, most well-known. And I guess it's kind of one of those that people play and... Um, you know, to learn in school and stuff. Uh, Joni Mitchell added lyrics to it uh, for her 1979 album called Mingus, and she was actually collaborating with him um, shortly before his death on this record. Uh, so check that out too, because that's an interesting kind of um, album. So this is Goodbye Pork Pie Hat for his friend, Lester Young. Goodbye, pork pie. All hat. right, very chill. Melodic. It is very chill. Well, you know, it's. I think they played it at his funeral, actually. Oh wow. Um. So in 1962, on his album "Oh Yeah," hmm. which I think is a great name for an album. <laughs> um. He there's a song called "Eat That Chicken," which I find hilarious so i'm gonna find it and this is on youtube this is not on um, itunes or anything 
um, and it's I don't know it it's kind of give it representation of I think his fun side and kind of being goofy which he seems to be a lot of um, and if you're not into it um, when you go on reddit reddit was like hey if you're not into this at least it gets your kids to eat chicken <laughs> which I thought was funny so here is eat that chicken said eat that chicken i guess yeah <laughs> that makes me feel bad about not being able to write lyrics <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i know I, that's one of those things where you're like i could have written that song and then you start looking at like probably intricacies of it and you're like oh yeah i, I could not have written that song <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, okay well no yeah that, that i like that one that's the kind of stuff i like yeah that chicken so his gospel influence can be heard on his song Wednesday Night Prayer Meeting, which is off his Blues and Roots album from 1959. So let's play that. Wednesday Night Prayer Meeting. go that's mm -hmm. the gospel influence and then his blues influence you can hear on Monin from also from the blues and roots album this is Monin That's something that they tell us to do a lot for improv. Mm -hmm. You see how he's doing that? You're like, dun, 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 dun. Yeah, yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Changing it up a little bit or just yeah. keep keeping with that note that hits low. Yeah. They tell us to stick with a, when you come in with your solo, stick with like a basic idea like that, a little phrase, mm -hmm. like you're talking, and then dump the root right. note or right. the third or whatever. And then uh, it builds tension. Cool. And then you change your solo more. And then when they're expecting it, you do something else that's cooler mm -hmm. it builds your solo up like that so is that that root note basically like grounds the whole thing kind of gives it continuity yeah. or something I just sound like I knew what I was talking about <laughs> <laughs> there you go 
I'm learning stuff. It seems he seems very like like some of the guys that you listen to, even on like the trumpet. Mm-hmm. They'll just rip super hard. Like Miles Davis, I think, was a trumpet player. And it's mm-hmm. just stupid because everybody loves Miles Davis. So mm-hmm. anybody that likes jazz is going to be like, yeah, no shit. But he, like, they, <laughs> Steve, one of our teachers, told us, like, we're going to do this Miles Davis song. You can listen to him. It's good to listen to because everything's very simple. And, he, you know, he's not too fast. And I listened to it, and he's literally ripping on the trumpet. <laughs> I'm like, dude, I can't even play that on guitar. <laughs> but he seems, like, actually very melodic and, and simple almost in some of his yeah. stuff, which is cool. Well, I like that m- more. Yeah, you should check out well and listen to the whole thing. You know, I think because he's he was so personally like mentally erratic that like his stuff is so diverse that mm-hmm. it, and interesting. It, 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 it's sad to say, I think it makes his music super interesting. Yeah, you know. So we kind of talked about him, you know, and he in California and growing up in Watts and the history of Watts a little bit. And so we're going to pause on him as he, in 1951, as he goes to New York, we're going to stay in Watts, you know, because he left before the Watts riots, the first Watts riots. Now, there was a 1992 Watts riots, which we will talk about at another time. And I think we're going to do a whole episode about that, and we can talk about rap and the gang situation and all that kind of cool. stuff. But the first riots happened... They started on August 11th um, and went to August 17th, 1965. Um, the incident that sparked the whole riot, so all the systematic like oppression that we talked about earlier going on in the neighborhood led up to this one incident with the police and a drunk driving um, um, incident in Watts. Um, that kind of sparked the riots. So some people are like, oh, it just was a drunk driving thing, what happened? And, you know, and they just wanted to destroy their town, which is the very um, small-minded version of what people say about the riots um, Mm -hmm. or revolution. Now, the people that in Watts that were involved in the riots, uh, the African-Americans said it, they call it the Watts Revolution because to them it was uh. a revolution. To the people that were not involved and don't live there, it is a riot. So it's a big difference in the viewpoint of how you look at what happened right. in these couple days. So it was a very hot night. Um, a lot of people mentioned that, so I'm mentioning it. It was in the mid to high 90s. Um, Marquette Fry had been drinking with his brother, Ronald, and he was driving home when he was pulled over for suspicion of drunk driving on Avalon Boulevard and 116th Street, South Central LA in Watts. Some people say it's not quite in Watts, but it's basically Watts. Um, a motorist had, a motorcyclist had pulled over the officer. Officer, His name is Lee Minicus. Minicus? I think it's Minicus. M-I-N-I-K-U-S. Um, and said, hey, that guy on that car right there, he's drunk please take care of him. Um, so Fry was pulled over and given a field sobriety test, which he failed. And okay, while no. this was going on, Ronald, his stepbrother, ran up the two blocks to their house where their mother was. Her name is Rena. Mm-hmm. And she came down and was upset that her son was being arrested. And so the officer at first and people that were kind of around it, the situation right at the beginning said that Fry was quote jovial and was admitting to having a few beers but then when his mom showed up like everything changed he became angry and he started yelling 
and was started to resist resist arrest. Yeah. Um, and so along with Rena, when everybody was kind of alerted that this was going on, a bunch of bystanders started congregating. And um, Fry began to arrest, resist arrest, like I said. And at some point, Rena had looked to be pushed. Um, and so, and of course, still people are still coming. And some people thought she was pregnant and that she was actually wearing like a very big, flowy kind of muumuu-ish um, type of dress. Okay. Um, and she wasn't pregnant. And then rumors were spreading that they were pushing around this pregnant woman, so more people came down. And so uh, uh, Fry, like, was resisting. His brother apparently, supposedly, according to the officer, hit him. Rena jumped on the officer's back. There was, like, a, this whole thing going on. It lasted way too long, according to, according to a lot of people. Um, but they ended up arresting the mom and the two boys, so all three of them. And they were taken downtown. They all left. Well, all the bystanders were left there fuming, and that kind of exploded into this whole riot. Um, so kind of leading up to that, which was all the stuff that we had talked about, um, there was also, like, people couldn't pay rent. There was all this stuff that was coming up in 1964, or that just happened in 1964 with a lot of... Um, elections going on that didn't kind of go in the favor of the city like the fair housing was under attack which meant that people regardless of their race could buy property so that was still going on at this point so there was all this crazy tension going on so a viewpoint of like chief parker so they interviewed him years later i think it was like 20 years later they interviewed from different points of view of what had happened that night and he said that um that you know, he, him and, like, the, the the three that were arrested that were involved, they didn't even know the riots had started because they were in the police station, like, doing paperwork and filling out stuff and whatever. So by the time they were let go, everything had exploded, and they were like, what's going on? <laughs> so this all started the night of August 11th. So Chief Parker, who was the police chief at the time, said on August 12th at a news conference, which people are like, what are you going to do about this stuff? Because they were rioting. They were looting. They were starting fires. They were breaking down windows basically destroying their community um and a lot of people thought like oh they're you know they're destroying black you know uh businesses and everything well come to find out later on it was they knew who had a black business and who had a white business in the area and they were targeting white businesses uh-huh because the white businesses in the area would jack up the prices for the black people in the community on like furniture and just basic household stuff so of course yeah. was, people were pissed off so he said in this news conferences that when they were asked why because there was no police presence like they kind of went down sussed out the situation they supposedly had people kind of perched around town to figure out who the per who the who was actually starting the riots because they were going to try to arrest them so they were kind of sitting there chilling and letting things happen and so he said quote uh that they they quote can't turn all the men meaning the policemen into watts meaning that they couldn't turn out all the policemen over to Watts because they had a large city to defend. And he was worried that if everybody focused on Watts, then everything would go out and, and go into the white neighborhoods and the white neighborhoods would be left, you know, um, with no security or whatever. And he said it would be open season, open season everywhere else. That was his quote, open season. So that was like basically white fear that 
you know, they were going to go into their communities. So they had to protect their own white communities and not the black community that had the problem. Yeah. So basically he didn't want to do anything. And he suggested that a black leader of the community should go down and tell him to stop. So, and then, so this Reverend H.H. Bookins, he called to have a peace meeting, which didn't work. So there was a video um, of this and the kids that were kind of doing everything were like, you know, do you live here? And he's like, yes, I'm just trying to, you know, have peace and let's stop doing this. And he's like, screw this, blah, blah, blah. Basically, they were fed up. They weren't listening to anybody. So, of course, white people ended up going to the gun stores and buying up all the guns. So it was total mayhem. Classic governor, white people. Classic yeah. white people. <laughs> the governor Continue. of California was in Greece at the time. Didn't come back. <laughs> The mayor oh was out God. of town at the time. He was in yeah. San Diego. And then a- after San Diego, he was supposed to go to San Francisco. And they stopped and asked him, are you going to go to L.A. to take care of this? And he said, no, 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 no. I've had this meeting planned for months and months. I can't cancel it. So whatever is going to happen is going to happen. If it gets worse, call the National Guard. So the leaders cool. of the city weren't even around. So by Friday the 13th, um, ironically, the National Guard arrived at the perimeters of Watts and were ordered to begin digging trenches at intersections. Unfortunately, this meant that the majority of residents, residents of Watts who weren't participating in the chaos were now, and that was basically the majority, were shut in with it, and there was nothing they could do. So They started digging trenches? They dug trenches around. It was a Damn. war zone. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Um, there's a lot of accounts of people saying that when they went to bed at night, they drug their mattresses on the floor of their houses because they didn't want to be hit in the middle of the night by bullets mm. flying in their windows. So people were terrified. Yeah. Um, after a checkpoint um, was rammed by a car, soldiers were ordered to load their weapons and fix bayonets. That night, the mysterious shooting deaths began. A man named Frank Posse was the first. Uh, he was cut down after stepping out of a barber shop on 89th and Broadway. Um the doo-wop singer Charles Fitzer, uh, whose group The Olympics had recorded the original versions of the song Good Lovin', was killed on his way to band rehearsal. And a comedian and civil rights activist, Dick Gregory, ventured out to his neighborhood to try to uh, stop the looters, and he and came across a boy crying over a headless body. Oh! So this was a glimpse of what was going on in this little community. So when the National Guard showed up and when police would show up finally and the firemen would show up because they were using, um, what is it called, the Molotov cocktails? Yeah, Molotov, Molotov cocktail. Th- yeah, they were throwing them into the businesses and lighting yeah. fires um, and burning down businesses and stuff. They would throw um, rocks and, and sharp bottles at them and they would fire guns at them too. So it was basically a war, war, war zone. So, all in all, 34 people were killed. Five of them were not white, so the majority were white. 1,000 people were injured. 200 Mm. businesses burned to the ground. 700 businesses were looted um, and and damaged. So, whatever they didn't take, they burned. So, they'd go into a place, take everything, and then they would burn the rest of it. 4,000 people were arrested. And 54 square miles were destroyed, which is more than twice the size of the island of Manhattan. Whoa. So, it shows you how much... Yeah. So, um, most of the destruction was up and down 103rd Street, which became known as Charcoal Alley, because most of the buildings were burned down, obviously. The only building untouched and intact on 103rd Street, after the rights were over, was the Watts Rail Station. 
Full circle. Isn't that cool? Not cool, but <laughs> it's kind of cra- it's kind of crazy. If it hey, if it had been destroyed, it would be less cool. Right. So in the a way, LA, yes. The LA Times called it quote a symbol of continuity, continuity, hope, and renewal. It's listed on the National Treasure of Historic Places, and it was restored in the 80s. And today, it's a small office and museum for Watts his Watts history. And there's actually a new blue line that runs down um, to Long Beach, which stops near the old station. But don't get too warm and fuzzy about it, because 87 motorists and pedestrians have been killed there since 1990, and it is the deadliest light rail line in the country. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Deceased. <laughs> Deceased. Nana, if you're listening, it runs in the family. <laughs> That's for Nana. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to laugh at that because it's terrible, but yeah, it just shows, I feel like Watts is like, it tries, 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 and then something terrible, terrible. And then it's yeah. like, it, it's just like it can't win. So, hey, maybe Mayor Town was right. They should have changed the name. Maybe it's the name. Maybe the Watts family was cursed. Maybe. Maybe that's what it is. But what, I don't want to sound like Watts is bad because they have a wonderful community now. After 1966, after the riots, um, the uh, they started the um, a festival there. And there's actually the oldest African-American cultural festival in America is in Watts. It's called the Watts Summer Festival. And this year, if anyone's interested in going, it's August 10th and 11th at the Ted Watkins Park, which I think is pretty cool. So out of the ashes, literal ashes, comes mm-hmm. some great stuff. So if we're going to go back to Mingus here, um, after he he had a weird quote about the riots where he didn't believe that the participants in the riots were from Watts. He was convinced that people from outside the community came in and destroyed the community. So, which I thought was interesting. And I don't know if that's because he was in New York and at that time he was dealing with so much stuff that he was, and he was so out of the loop about his own community that he just didn't want to believe that that's what, you know, that it was people within his own community that was going Yeah. On, you know? Yeah. But anyway, so around 1967, um, and we'll talk about kind of, you know, after the riots, um, there's kind of mixed feelings about whether it was actually a good thing for Watts to have this revolution or if it was a bad thing. Because to some people, things didn't really change and some people saw change. So I guess depending on your point of view and what happened, um, you know, some businesses did, did, uh, they did come in and build like a hospital that gave a lot of people some employment. you know, so some good things did come out of it, and basically it was like this horrible thing had to happen before people, like, listened to us. It was it was a cry for help. To me, that yeah. was just a cry for help. They are like, fucking help us. This sucks, you know. So at this point, Mingus is, has now withdrawn from jazz. Um, he's had his own struggles, and rock and roll was basically taking over at this point, and jazz was taking a backseat. Nobody was really going to jazz anymore. Um, the jazz clubs were closing or turning into rock um, venues, which we know from like Sunset um, when we've had other episodes. And his wife, Sue, his, uh, tells a story of him lying in the park in New York and he was naked with his kids and he was throwing $100 bills everywhere. And he clearly got taken in and they mm-hmm. brought him to Mount Sinai um, where she says he spent two months and I'm assuming she means he was kind of on a 
on a psych lockdown trying to figure out what was going on. Um, he seemed to kind of have snapped a little bit. Um, he left music completely and became a photographer, and he actually got some jobs. Um, and she said he, but he was miserable because he was not playing, but he just didn't feel like um, being a part of the jazz community anymore. I think he thought it was over, and he had lost all his money. Um, and this is when a documentary was made of him, which is called Mingus, and it's I, I got to a point in it where, and I just couldn't watch it anymore. It was, but it really shows you a very intimate look at his life. He's in his New York apartment, and it's 1966. Um, it's on YouTube, so go watch it if you want to. And the director was Thomas Reitman, and he, is, Mingus was actually getting evicted from his apartment at the time for not paying rent because he didn't have any money. And he's living with his five-year-old daughter. And she's in, in and out of the, the documentary. And there, his apartment is looks like a hoarder's house. There's just stuff everywhere. And I don't know if that's because he's moving or if that's how he lived by. But he was in the process of getting evicted. He knew he was leaving. So he, he had a bunch of guns around. Like, if he wasn't playing some music and picking up an instrument and playing something for the documentary he was like playing with a gun and then he was like playing with his daughter and his daughter's like right there and he's like it was really weird um and then at one point he like shoots the gun off into the ceiling and they show this humongous hole in the ceiling and he's like laughing and his daughter's literally <laughs> like right there and then at another point he starts drinking some wine he asks the director if he wants some wine and he says, oh, my daughter drinks wine and gives her a sip on camera and she just takes it like she's had it a million times. And that's when I almost turned it off. And then he, they start talking about women and his view of women, which was kind of off the rails. He seemed a little pro-woman and then he seemed not pro-woman because, I don't know, it was very weird. His, his thoughts were kind of all over the place. That he brings his five-year-old over and his daughter and he said he is asking her what she's supposed to do after school or why do you go to school and she was like didn't understand him she was confused and he's like well what are you going to do after school she's like I don't know and she was very confused and he's like are you supposed to love one man or lots of men and she's like one man and he's like that's right you love one man not lots of men right and she's like yeah one man and I was like all right I'm done <laughs> so I turned yeah. it off it just got a little too like the mom and me was like stop touching that child get away from that child but he clearly loved her but I think he just it was not in his right mind I don't know what kind of if he was bipolar or whatever if I'm going to diagnose him myself I don't know but there was something off there no he's just crazy yeah um so the you know I kind of fast forwarded to the end where they the police took him away I don't I guess they must have arrested him and literally all his stuff is lined up and down the street in New York and so that is when he kind of obviously stopped playing the only thing that got him out of it and made him start playing again was his idol Duke Ellington was playing at Berkeley and he played um, the song The Clown and Mingus was told to go out and go listen to it or whatever but that impressed him so much and he was so moved by that that you know his idol Duke Ellington was playing his, his music and he was so honored that he got back into playing music again and then he actually had this resurgence of being really famous and touring all over the world and making some money and some people say it was his best time that he had um so i'm gonna play do you have the clown up or do i have the clown you have the clown up you have the clown up i do oh, yeah i have, have sue's changes okay so here's the clown 
that's the clown. Okay, well, just weird. <laughs> I'm sure it's it's a 12-minute piece. I'm sure it goes on to be very Duke Ellington-ish or something. I don't know. but that's Again, it makes me feel bad about not being able to write lyrics. <laughs> Literally just explain what a clown is. Cool. <laughs> but it sounds cool. like a clown. Um, so I'm, I'm going to have you play Sue's Changes after okay. this little piece right here. So towards the end of his life... Um, he was very overweight. Uh, I don't want to weight shame, but it, I think it was part of his disease. At some point, um, he was over 300 pounds, and then he had gotten down to like two something, and that made his back have an issue. I think he had a slip slip disc, um, and he went into the hospital because of that, and he was diagnosed with ALS, and they he was oh. told he only had a few months to live. So I feel like so many of these guys just have a not. Not, they just not glorious demise. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, well, they just don't. They the later in their life, they just don't ha- handle it very well. Well, what do you think it's from? Being a rock star, hard drugs, living, man, hard living. Yep. Yeah, and uh. he was a big man. He obviously ate a lot. Didn't take care of himself. I'm sure he was. He, the whole time that he loved pipes, he had a pipe collection. He yeah. smoked tobacco. So you know, I mean, it's just it's a hard hard life. You travel everywhere. You're money's up and down whatever it is it's so he was paralyzed at one point in a wheelchair and even during this um he sang into a tape recorder because he just needed to he i think he just constantly had the music going in his head and there's a private recording of him singing uh the song chair in the sky by Joni mitchell um, and as i said before she was working with him at the end so he was into a lot of her music um so sue in the last couple of months, uh, bought him an apartment, um, looking over some lake or pond in New York City, so he would have like a peaceful kind of area to sit, and that's where he would sing into the recorder, and and um, she was really like his kind of rock, and she kind of was, uh, after he passed, she went on to really keep his legacy alive, which we'll talk about in a second, and he because she was such a su- huge supporter of his he wrote a song for her called Sue's Changes which Aiden's going to play right now and she was really honored that he actually wrote a song for her and named you know named it after her meeting somebody who said that uh, they could find a holistic healing approach for him for his ALS. Sue in the do- in a doc- one of the documentaries actually called this woman a witch, which I thought was interesting. Um, and so I don't know what that meant, but he ended up going to Mexico where this person was um, to get to get healed, basically. It was a healer. 
so they got a house down there and he was doing this holistic approach and at one point all his ex-wives and all his kids were down there with him which was kind of nice because they interviewed one of his sons and he said it was one of the first times that he'd kind of been around all the kids at the same time because there was I think there's I don't know six or six or seven of them five five or six and they were with a couple different moms so you know he didn't grow up really with all of them and he looks exactly like his dad it's crazy like a young exactly like a young version of him um unfortunately you know he the holistic approach did not work and he died on january 5th 1979 and sue ended up going to uh, india and scattering his ashes in the ganges river Mm. which is kind of cool after his death um somebody asked to come along and catalog all his compositions which were numerous and were lying all over this apartment in New York that they had and they started going through stuff and they discovered um, a piece called Epitaph which he tried to perform back in 1962 but they couldn't get it together because it was so complex and so long um, that it ended up just not happening and um, he was actually said that that was the embarrassment of his career and then he kind of shelved it and apparently worked on it in secret. And his friends would say that he would cryptically talk about this, like, symphony that he'd been working on. Um, but none of them really knew what he was talking about. It was He was always very cryptic when he was talking about it. But they knew something was – he had something in the works, but they weren't sure what was going on. Um, and they found it, and now it's played all over the world. Sue kind of keeps it alive, and apparently it's – very difficult to play and so complex that most people have never heard anything like it and these are like the top jazz guys are like this is unlike anything I've ever heard it's 4,235 measures long (laughs) that's (laughs) and it takes over two hours to perform so most orchestras that perform it there has to be between 30 and 31 uh, musicians playing and Mingus knew that it would not be performed in his lifetime, which is why he called it Epitaph, declaring it was written for his tombstone. Mm-hmm. So Aiden's going to play a piece of it. I don't know which piece is the best, but I'm sure everybody has their own opinion, but this is part of Epitaph. Yeah, looking at that, it's on a video on YouTube. Charles Mingus's uh, epitaph, live in Berlin, conducted by Gunther Schuler. I, I don't know how much of that is right, but it literally just looks like the. Uh, it literally just looks like the uh, like almost <laughs> sports version of music. I guess I don't see why you would have to play for two hours or four thousand measures, but. I mean that just seems kind of like a competition because how musical can that be? Sorry, I was just I was just saying how it that seems like it's like almost like sports for musicians. Like yeah. it's just a competition to see who can play for two hours. Look, we did this. This orchestra did this for two hours straight. Right. Exactly. Um, it's crazy. But it's cool either way. Can you hear that alarm going off in the background? I can. That's all right. Okay. We don't Hold have much on. more though. Right. Hold on. Do you want to stop real quick, or do you want to just finish up? No, nah, just finish up. It's good. Okay. So, 
he recorded over 100 albums, composed over 300 musical scores, and toured in four continents. Uh, Sue established the band um, The Mingus Dynasty, which tours internationally playing his music. And he also taught um, composition at the State University of New York in Buffalo and received an honorary degree from Brandeis University. So today um, at the Watts Towers, there's a whole community center there, and there's also the Charles Mingus Youth Arts Center, um, which Nipsey Hussle actually was a student there. And All right. They have a program called Meet the Composer Program, which he was at, so he was honored over there after mm -hmm. his passing. Um, you can watch Mingus, which is a documentary, and Triumph of the Underdog, another documentary about Charles Mingus on YouTube. And there's also a really cool documentary about the Black Woodstock, which is on YouTube. It's called Wattstack, which came out in 1973, and it's to commemorate the Watts riots. It's a film documenting um, a huge concert that they did at LA's uh, Memorial Coliseum on August 20th, 1973, I think. And it was nominated for a 1974 uh, the Golden Globe for Best Documentary. All right. So with the alarm going off in the background, uh -huh. which is going off at my house, I'm not sure why. Hopefully my children, <laughs> my children are okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> we'll they're in the recording studio. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Uh -huh. We uh, see you next week. I don't mm -hmm. know what we're going to do. Rap or something you said? Maybe. No, maybe we'll do something different. That'll be but fun. Thanks for listening. Follow us on all social media. I will make sure my house isn't being robbed, and we will see you guys next week. Thanks. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye.